Why is New Zealand's new agriculture emissions plan unique? And how will the China battery blacklisting impact the U.S. EV industry? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckett Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Wednesday, October 12th. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Kenya recently lifted its ban on genetically modified crops in hopes of increasing the crop yield and food security amid East Africa's worst drought in 40 years. Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia experienced four failed rainy seasons in a row, which is forcing 1.5 million people to flee their homes in search for food and water elsewhere. Many have died on the journey or at shelters. Genetic modification can produce crops more drought resilient or more nutritionally dense to reduce hunger in that area. In general, genetic modification might be utilized more often as climate change makes the environment harsher. Moving over to the theme of rain now, we head over to Sydney, Australia. Sydney has officially recorded 2022 as its wettest year since 1858, and the year is not even over yet. The city recorded over 2,200 millimeters of rain so far, and this excessive amount of rainfall is mainly due to the triple La Nina the world has been experiencing since October 2020. La Niñas tend to drop more rain in places like Australia and South Asia while drying out places like Europe and North America. Usually La Niñas only last a few months, but this one just doesn't seem like it wants to end. Meteorologists predict it will let up anytime from November to February, and the longer it lasts, the more at risk Australia is to experience more deadly summer floods. Now let's talk about melting snowpack. Scotland's winter will be snow-free for the fourth time in six years. The longest-lasting snowpack in the UK, called the Sphinx, melted completely last week, which is the ninth time this has happened in the last 300 years. Six of those nine times occurred in the 2000s. If you wanted a clear example of escalating climate temperatures, there you go. The U.S. West is also experiencing disappearing snowpack, which is fueling the mega drought. The loss of mountain snowpack is one of the tipping points we'd likely reach if global warming reaches 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We are currently on track to heat the planet anywhere from 2.3 to 2.7 degrees Celsius, and we're currently at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming. This would spell disaster for billions of people who rely on mountain snowpack for drinking water throughout the year. Not only does this water refill deplete rivers and lakes, but it also replenishes the groundwater supply. In response to the record low Colorado River water levels, Southern California recently announced that it would further ration its water supply, enough to reduce the state's water allotment by 9% for the next four years. California is entitled to more Colorado River water than any other state, and much, arguably too much, of that water feeds the agriculture industry. In central California, the inland city of Kalinga might soon run out of its water allotment before the end of the year. Its water is not only used by 17,000 residents, but also by nearby oil and cattle operations. The city is begging the state for more water, but it might have to pay an exorbitant fee for it. Finally, let's talk about what will likely be the last hurricane of the Atlantic season, Julia. Julia killed at least 28 people as it drenched Central America over the weekend. Nicaragua's Caribbean coast was hit the hardest, but the storm extended to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Floods and mudslides were a huge risk because of how hilly the area is. 
Past this event, though, meteorologists don't see any more hurricanes forming over the next two weeks. So Julia likely marks the end of a weirdly quiet yet weirdly active hurricane season. Time for some climate studies. Research by Bloomberg NEF determines that global investments in clean and low-carbon technology are finally almost matching fossil fuel funding. It's about a 0.9 to 1 ratio, which is up from a 0.5 to 1 ratio in 2015. Researchers analyzed long-term scenarios created by the International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the Network for Greening the Financial System, which suggests that spending on low-carbon energy will be four times as much as for fossil fuels by 2030. The ratio can hit a 6 to 1 by 2040 and as high as a 10 to 1 by 2050. Forget the climate reparations, maybe let's start just alleviating poor countries' debts. A report by the European Network of Debt and Development, called Eurodad, found that 37 small island nations received just $1.5 billion in climate financing from 2016 to 2020, but 22 of them had to pay a total of $26.6 billion to their external debtors during that same time frame. The creditors comprised of more than 50 non-governmental organizations like the International Monetary Fund, or IM. F. Public debt levels in the island nations represent over 70% of their GDP, and because climate change financing right now is often in the form of loans, that trend is expected to continue into the foreseeable future. More than 80% of all island nations are in debt. Organizations like Debt Justice UK and Jubilee Germany have been pushing for the IMF and the World Bank to deliver debt relief to emerging economies for years. The IMF and the World Bank are meeting in Washington, D.C. this week to talk about a variety of things, one of which is is debt reform. But U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen doesn't expect any major breakthroughs to be made from this meeting. But something that actually already came out of this meeting is the World Bank announced that it will launch a new fund to provide grants for decarbonization projects. The Scaling Climate Action by Lower Emissions, or SCALE, fund will pool public money to low- and middle-income countries to deliver pre-agreed results that will help them reduce emissions, such as decommissioning coal-fired power plants. Three areas the bank would like to see the money go into are natural climate solutions based on agriculture, forestry, land use, and oceans, sustainable infrastructure such as energy and transport, and fiscal and financial solutions that directly or indirectly mobilize resources for climate action. SCALE will be the new umbrella fund for the bank's climate financing activities, though we don't know the size of the fund yet. It will be formally launched during COP27, the big UN climate conference in Egypt, next month. That story brings us into the climate victories. The International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, just pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050. The organization represents 193 countries. Emphasis on net because most of the progress is expected to be made through carbon offsets. Carbon offsets are made through buying credits where the money is supposed to go towards reforestation, conservation, or carbon removal efforts that will displace the number of emissions created by doing the offsetted task. Usually the amount of emissions offset by the efforts the money goes towards isn't close to the number of emissions made through the activity being offset, like flying in this case. Oftentimes these airlines advertise their carbon offset schemes to claim carbon neutrality, which is textbook greenwashing. This pledge is also non-binding and climate groups call it weak. 
Aviation represents at least 2.5% of global emissions, though scientists think that it might represent more than that due to the global warming capabilities of contrails. Contrails are the streaks in the sky airplanes can produce if they fly at higher elevations. So no, they don't cause mind control or infertility or whatever. They cause climate change. The sector is a difficult sector to decarbonize because most airplanes are too big to be electrified, leaving it up to low-carbon emerging technologies like biofuels and hydrogen to do the heavy lifting. Each of those technologies has its own pros and cons, and frankly, one of the best ways to decarbonize a sector is actually to just reduce the demand for flying in general, but that would make less money, so that solution is largely ignored when it comes to these kind of pledges. Anyways, while the ICAO pledge is non-binding, history shows that usually member countries follow the organization's leadership. Airlines will use the new Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation, or CORSIA, if they surpass the emissions equivalent to 85% of their emissions in 2019, which is frankly a pretty high bar. Climate campaigners say that this will only cover about 22% of future emissions in 2030. Well, that climate victory wasn't much of a victory, so let's see if we can do better on the next one. Rwanda will be the second country after Barbados to access the International Monetary Fund's Resilience and Sustainability Trust, a tool for developing countries to borrow money to build themselves up against the worsening impacts of climate-induced extreme weather events. The country will borrow about $310 million and expects to need about $11 billion by 2030. So I guess it's good that Rwanda is getting money for climate resilience, but that sounds like a loan to me. And I remember saying something about debt reform earlier. Okay, I think we could do better than that. I think I think we can do better than that. How about this next one? New Zealand's leadership proposed the world's first scheme to require farmers to pay for emitting methane and nitrous oxide. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. It's responsible for about 30% of man-made global warming. Nitrous oxide is 273 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 100 years they're in the atmosphere, and it accounts for about 8% of man-made global warming. In the case of agriculture, methane comes from cow burps and farts, manure, and land use changes. Nitrous oxide mainly comes from livestock urine, something I actually did not know. Apparently, it's a problem when they've been exposed to a lot of fertilizer as if you needed another reason to reduce the chemical use in food production. Agriculture is New Zealand's biggest emissions sector, and livestock is the main reason for that. It also is the country's largest exporting industry, worth $46.4 billion a year. During the announcement, New Zealand said this move would give its exports an industry advantage because they would be able to legitimately claim that their products were grown sustainably. And New Zealand did it right when they made this proposed scheme, too. The plan is for formed out of the He Waka Ekinoa, a partnership between farming leaders, Maori, and the government, and feedback from the Climate Change Commission. Under this formal plan, which would come into play in 2025, farmers who meet the threshold for herd size and fertilizer use will be required to pay a levy the government will set every one to three years. The price will be based on the country's progress in reaching its goal of cutting methane emissions by 10% compared to 2017 levels by 2030. The end goal is to reach net zero emissions by 2050. The scheme has now been sent to the cabinet to be weighed on early next year. I think that was a pretty good climate victory. I hope it passes. Next up, we have the European Commission proposing to modernize a secret treaty that has made it hard for countries in and out of Europe to shut down fossil fuel projects. 
It's called the Energy Charter Treaty, and it gives energy companies the power to sue countries in a secret court if they believe their profit margins can be harmed by an enacted policy. This treaty was made to protect energy firms that invested in former Soviet economies after the Iron Curtain fell. 52 countries signed to the treaty, and two-thirds of the time the treaty has been used for EU or on EU disputes. The treaty has dispersed over a trillion dollars through its use, and now it's hindering countries' decarbonization goals because they risk being sued if if they want to cancel a fossil fuel project by a company that is from another country. Therefore, the European Commission proposed that the treaty should not be used for intra-EU relations. Some countries in the EU say this isn't far enough and a full treaty exit is the way to go. Italy actually left it five years ago, and now Poland just voted to leave it regardless of whether its fellow EU countries collectively joined. Speaking of EU states, Greece saw all of its electricity covered by renewables for a five-hour period on Friday, the longest time yet for this to happen in the history of the country's electricity system. Overall, clean energy from solar, wind, and hydropower accounts for a little less than half of Greece's power mix. The country has a goal of reaching 70% clean energy by 2030. To help Greece, Bulgaria, and Italy meet its decarbonization goals, they've teamed up with Egypt and other African countries bordering the Sahara Desert to supply desert solar power through undersea cables. The multi-billion dollar project, which is expected to be completed before the end of the decade, is expected to bring about 3,000 megawatts of power to European countries. That's enough to power about 1,000 homes. Honestly, I feel like that's not a lot of power to use 1,373 kilometers of cable material. A similar project is being undertaken between the UK and North Africa called the Kinks Morocco UK Power Project. Let's start with some climate fails. Remember, don't get despondent, get mad. Let's start with a protest gone wrong. Ugandan police recently brutally arrested and detained nine anti-pipeline activists outside of the EU embassy. And by brutally detained, I mean they broke a man's arm and hit another man in the eye with a baton. About 50 protesters were pushing against the East Africa crude oil pipeline project being led by Total Energies and the China National Offshore Oil Corporation. The pipeline will bring 230,000 barrels of oil a day from oil fields in Uganda to the coast of Tanzania to be exported. That's enough oil to emit emissions equivalent to Zimbabwe's annual output. The project is supported by the Ugandan and Tanzanian governments, but climate and environmental activists say the pipeline will run through several sensitive ecosystems and wetlands of designated international importance, and it will contribute to fossil fuel dependency. The EU called for protesters to be released from detention, saying it values democratic debates. This is actually consistent with the European Parliament's emergency resolution it passed last month to condemn human rights violations and environmental damage associated with fossil fuel projects in Uganda and Tanzania. Meanwhile, Greenpeace Africa conducted an on-the-ground investigation in the Democratic Republic of Congo to find that locals are mostly left in the dark about the government's plans to auction off large swaths of land for oil and gas exploration and extraction. The researchers visited 14 different communities in four of the 30 proposed oil blocks and found that most of the residents were unaware of the government's plans. One villager said, quote, if this project were for the good of the population, it could have disgusted with us in advance. They shouldn't put blocks in areas we live in without having notified us beforehand. Additionally, a lot of proposed locations would destroy DRC forests and peatlands. Peatlands are valuable ecosystems that are huge carbon sinks. 
The DRC peatlands are estimated to store as much as 29 billion tons of carbon. The blocks are only expected to directly destroy a small set of the peatlands, but roads and other infrastructure around the sites could do more damage. So in many ways, these projects would hinder the DRC's decarbonization efforts. Let's finish off today's episode talking about cobalt mining, specifically for the U.S. electric vehicle battery fleet. The Department of Labor just added lithium-ion batteries from China to the list of goods with materials known to contain child or forced labor under the 2006 human trafficking law. This is because most of the cobalt in those batteries is sourced by China from the DRC, and tens of thousands of children have been known to work in those mines for up to 12-hour shifts. Obviously, child labor is horrible, so ethically, this is a good decision by the department. But this could have huge implications for the U.S. EV industry because most electric vehicle batteries are made in China and 70% of the global cobalt supply comes from the DRC. The department's decision is also non-punitive, probably because it knows that a reinforcement of this rule would decimate the EV industry. So there is concern that the fossil fuel industry and its sympathizers will point to this as an example of the Biden administration knowingly allowing the use of child labor produced products in the transition. However, punitive measures might come in the future, and this might encourage a shift to either more ethically sourced cobalt or batteries that don't require the material at all, like lithium iron phosphate batteries. And while this won't make much of a dent in the global market, the U.S. actually did just open its first cobalt mine on Friday. It's located in Idaho and is run by the Australian-based company Jevorus Global. The company said that it will take care of the local environment, which includes part of the Salmon River. The river was polluted by a previous cobalt mine that used to work right near this new site. The company has already set aside $44 million for environmental cleanup, which was required by law. The mine will mostly be underground and will be capped once retired, which is different than the previous open pit mine. When this new mine is fully operational, it will make up about 10% of the U.S. cobalt demand. And that was your climate recap for Wednesday, October 12th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beck Sphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. I also have a Patreon. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.